If you take your Bibles, please, this morning, we're going to continue our study in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at two verses this morning, verses 13 and 14. But the verses we're looking at, verses 12 through 17, this whole segment focuses on Christ. Paul, as he's correcting, as he's giving instruction for Timothy in this church, which uh, Timothy is pastoring, he's, he stops and he just takes time to reflect on who our Savior is. But should not that be the focus of our lives, focusing on Jesus Christ? So we examined verse 12 and saw three reasons to be thankful for Christ. And just by way of review, those reasons were that he gives us strength for the work, he studies our character, and he sets in the ministry. Now we're going to continue in verse 13 and 14, seeing the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Now because verse 12 is part of the sentence that we're going to study in verse 13, I'm going to start in verse 12. So if you are physically able, if you please stand with me and honor the reading of God's word, we're going to read verses 12 down through verse 14. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. So we're going to look at the passage this way this morning. First, we're going to study what I was in verse 13. What I was in verse 13. Our second point will be why I did what I did, and that's also found in verse 13. Then our last point that we'll end with this morning will be how I was changed, and we'll see that in both verses. You and I need to understand Jesus Christ is merciful and full of grace. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, thank you for your love and mercy, your grace to us, and as we study that this morning, Lord, teach us again from your word. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. You know, it's important to remember from whence we are saved, but we don't glory in our past. Have you ever heard somebody giving a testimony sometimes, and the way they talk about their past is almost as if they're glamorizing what they were and almost act as if they miss what they once were? You know, oh, I was a drunk and I was a drug addict. And, but instead of making it sound like, hey, that's the wicked life in which I came from, they almost make it sound like that was the exciting good old times. Let me tell you, I don't believe that's a proper testimony. Because as I mentioned in the early morning service, there's nothing exciting about my past. There's nothing to go back to in my past. It was wicked, it was vile, and it was not the good old days. It was the old sinful ways. But you realize the Apostle Paul mentions many times about his past, but he never does it in a way that brings glory to his past. As a matter of fact, Paul, many times as he talks about his past, seems very ashamed of the fact that he was once a persecutor of the church that he's now trying to help start more of these churches. And I believe that's a proper way to look at our past. Now, there are many in here that have a past that you were saved out of that may be helpful and beneficial to others, but we don't give it to them in a glorious manner. We give it to them in a way to say, look, I understand where you are because I once walked in your shoes. 
But let me tell you something. There's more to life than where you are. There's a better life than what you're living, and it's only possible through Jesus Christ. You remember in 1 Corinthians, as Paul is talking to the Corinthians, he gives this whole list of all these wicked, vile sins, and then he gets in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11 and says, And such were some of you. But you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. He's not saying, hey, go back and rejoice in what you were. He's saying that's what you were, Christian. So stop rejoicing in those things and be thankful for who, what Christ has made you. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ has made you a new creature? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Aren't you glad you're a new creature? We should be. Now, Satan loves to try to rub our nose in the past and say, but look what you were. There's no way you can really serve God. There's no way he really loves you. Don't believe it. It's a lie. But Paul says, who was before? The idea before, former, earlier, past. In other words, he says, yes, I was that. But by the grace of God, I'm no longer. He says, first of all, I was a blasphemer. That's one who speaks against God and, or insulting God. But may I say, everyone in this room, before we were saved, is a blasphemer. You ever taken the name of the Lord God in vain? Folks, every one of us was a blasphemer. Let's not look at Paul and say, oh, wow, so wicked beyond what I was. Even if you were saved at an early age, you understand before you were a child of God, your thoughts were against God. But then he goes on, he says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor? Now you say, well, you know, I wasn't a persecutor of anybody, you know, and, and that may be true. But every one of us has unique history from which we were saved and either saved out of a sin or saved from ever getting into those sins. But may I say either way, God deserves the glory for saving our wretched souls. Amen. Amen. But Paul in his testimony says, now understand, his focus is not on Paul in this passage. His focus is on the grace and mercy of God. But to help you understand how merciful God is to him, he says, I was not only a blasphemer, but I was a persecutor of the church. Again, as I said in Sunday school, so many saying, you know, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. And I don't need to know your past, but I know the grace of God is sufficient. Maybe it's in the early morning service. They start to run together by 1140. What time is it? 1148. They start to all run together. But the point being is, I don't need to know your past, but I know the blood of Christ is sufficient to save all. Amen. So Paul says, I was a persecutor of the church. Now I want you to look at a couple passages with me. You can either turn there or I'll read them to you. Acts chapter 7, going back to the book of Acts in chapter 7, starting at verse 57 and going up through chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, then they cried with a loud voice. This is when Stephen, they're about ready to stone Stephen and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Now that's the Apostle Paul before he was saved. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there were great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad through the regions of Judea and Samaria 
except the apostles. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into high priest, and it talks about then he requested letters to go to Damascus and receive those. So here we have Paul at the stoning of Stephen, and then the church being scattered because of the persecution. But chapter 9 tells us one of the ringleaders of this persecution is Saul himself. Now we know in chapter 9, he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and was gloriously saved. You know, from that moment on, Paul was a persecutor of the church. But from that moment on, Paul became the one who's trying to preach the gospel and get more people saved and joined in the church. Amen? Amen. So Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And he says, injurious. The idea there being violent, insolent, or showing an arrogant or rude lack of respect. Our world today is full of violence, is it not? Our world today is full of rudeness. I'll tell you right now, I'm becoming more and more convinced the best thing every one of us can do is delete every social media account and go back to the way it was before. You know, we all lived without social media, and I think we'd all do well without it, because all social media does is brings out the absolute worst in people. I have seen even preachers sitting there arguing about the most silly things on there, and I even saw one guy post about it. He goes, wow, this is really great to see the edification of Christians among themselves. You know, that is, that is just becoming... It's wicked, folks. It's wicked. I'll just say what it is. It's wicked. Now, people really never have been all that great respect of each other. It's becoming worse and worse, but I'm telling you, social media has exaggerated it because you don't even have to say it to their face anymore. You can put it out for everybody else to be on your side of the issue. How many of us, before we were saved, were violent, lack of respect? Paul says, I was very injurious. You understand when Paul went to arrest people, he wasn't like, okay, I'm here to take everybody in. Now let's do this all nice and orderly. Let's all be real kind about it, okay? You understand just by the very fact of what he's saying and how the Bible describes with threatenings and slaughter, that there was a lot of violence involved in the way he was treating folks. I mean, there's a reason why the Christians were scared of the name Saul, right? How many of you like to be around an angry person? Hmm. Now, how many of you, others would classify as an angry person? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know why my wife has put up with me all these years, because I can have an angry streak. By the grace of God, when I surrender to God, he takes control. I can tell when the flesh has stepped in. You know how I can tell real quickly? That old angry guy likes to come out. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I'm glad... Living that lifestyle is what I was, not what I am. Amen? Amen? So Paul, in describing himself, again, the focus is not to be on him, although I want us to see what he was and be, remi be reminded, folks, every one of us is a sinner saved by grace. Every one of us has a past. And even if you were saved as a child, you still have a past before you were saved of living in sin. It may not be the grotesque sin of others. And by the way, those that 
give their testimony in such a way as to try to glamorize the past, often make young people who were saved from ever entering such a lifestyle feel like they don't have a testimony worth giving. Let me tell you something. Somebody who is saved as a young person who never experiences the wickedness of, the li of life, I believe have a greater testimony than somebody who is saved older and saved out of that wickedness because to God's glory, they never have to have the scars that what some of us carry. I think that's a greater testimony, don't you? And so let me say, if you were saved as a young child and were saved from ever experiencing some of the wickedness of life, well, you, you just shout your testimony from the root, rooftops because you have a greater testimony of the grace of God. I believe that to be true, don't you? Or just as because all of us were saved the same way, but you get what I'm saying. I don't know if there's really levels of who's better than others. Why do we always do that? Because we as human beings, everything must be a competition, especially men. But yet some have the attitude, I don't care who I hurt. I'm just going to do what I want, the way I want, how I want. Look, folks, and I understand people say, well, I have Christian liberty. But Paul makes it crystal clear, my liberty ends when it may create a stumbling block for a brother or sister. Paul was very zealous in what he did. Philippians 3, 4 through 7, he says, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof I might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of eighth day, of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Zeal does not mean somebody is right with God. There's a lot of false teachers out there who are very zealous in what they do. I'll be honest with you, folks. I believe sometimes the false church uh, that call themselves the Latter-day Saints are more zealous in, in trying to get people to believe their lie than we are in trying to get people to believe the truth, but their zealousness does not equate the truth. Understand, people say, well, wait a minute, I thought Mormons are Christians. No, they're not. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ, and you cannot deny the deity of Jesus Christ and be a born-again believer. The Bible makes that crystal clear. Yet they are more zealous in winning converts than many times we are who have the truth. But zeal does not equate to being right with God. Paul was very zealous. He thought he was actually doing God's work in persecuting the church. He found out he was wrong. Maybe today you don't know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're saying, you know, but I'm zealous for God. I try to do good things. I try to do, I try to go to church. I try, I've been baptized. I do all these really good things for others. Let me tell you something, none of that will save. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ any of us can have salvation. It's a free gift of eternal life, and you must come to Jesus with a understanding that you are a sinner who deserves to be separated from God. We deserve death. We deserve eternity in hell. But Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross at Calvary and offers to you the gift of eternal life. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, gloriously, he takes that sin away and he gives you his righteousness. You are washed. You're born again. Hallelujah. So Paul says, this is what I was. And then he gives an explanation of why he did what he did. Let's go back to verse 13. Who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious, 
but I obtained mercy, now get this last phrase, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Let's first look at that word unbelief. The idea of one of faith. You see, there was a time when every one of us was lost without Christ. When we were in our sin, we were blinded by sin. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine unto them. When we were living in sin, we were blinded to sin. We were blinded to the truth, were we not? Those that were saved at a later age, when you were living in that wicked, sinful lifestyle, you didn't have conviction about it. It's just the way things you did, right? You were blinded by it. You didn't even know, maybe, that there was a different way of living. We were bound by sin. Romans 6, 6, and 7, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Before I was saved, I was a slave to sin. Aren't you glad you're freed? So Paul says, I did what I did because I did it in unbelief. But then he even says before that, he says, I did it ignorantly. Which has the idea of being unaware or failed to understand. I did not know. In other words, Paul says, as I've explained already, he thought he was doing God's work by persecuting the church. He did it ignorantly. Now, ignorance is not an excuse, is it? If you break the law and law enforcement were to stop you and say, well, I wasn't aware of that law, do they say, oh, well, I'm sorry about that. I didn't know you were ignorant about it, so we're just going to let you go. No. Ignorance is not an excuse. But you know what's amazing? And this points to the mercy of God, that God understands before we're saved, much of what we did, we did it ignorantly, without knowledge. As a matter of fact, as Paul is preaching on Mars Hill, he says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. What he's saying is throughout history, people have turned from God, but now Jesus Christ has come to earth. He lived a perfect sinless life. He died on the cross of Calvary. He was buried and he rose again. And through that name, God now commands all men to repent. The time of the ignorance is over. It's time now to repent. You say, well, wait a minute. What about those that have never heard the gospel? Let me tell you, the fault is not God's because Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, gave what we call the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. The Great Commission has been given, so if they haven't heard, if they're still living in their ignorance, it's not God's fault, Christian. It's your mind for not telling them. Now, once they hear the truth, if they choose to reject the truth, they're not living in ignorance any longer. They have the knowledge. But those without the knowledge are living in ignorance. They're living in ignorance because we have failed to tell them. That makes sense? So Paul says, I did it in ignorance. I didn't know. 
But Christian, may I say for you and I, now that you and I know the truth and you and I have received the truth, we definitely no longer are in ignorance and we have no excuse for continuing in sin. And so those things in which draw you away from God, we don't have an excuse for. But while we're in our ignorance, every one of us had gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6 and 7, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So again, let's not dwell in the past or crave the things of the past, but rather rejoice in Christ and walk by faith. Because Christian, you and I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You and I have a Bible to teach us. We have a local church to help us. So Paul says, that is what I was. That is why I did what I did. But this is the real crux of the message. Again, because the message being entitled, The Mercy and Grace of Jesus. And he focuses, and this is the focus of this whole thing. He's not trying to focus on what Paul was, but he's focusing on the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. How was I changed? Well, first of all, all glory belongs to God. Remember this section, verses 12 through 17, is focusing on Christ. And he has, not, again, not brought this up to, for the self-aggrandizement or the glory in his past, but rather for the glory of God. As he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You ever stop and consider that passage, that verse? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. By the way, I think that one verse alone should help those that think that social drinking is okay because I really want to see you tip back that bottle and say, I'm doing this for the glory of God. Whether therefore you eat or drink. So every time I sit down to eat, what should be my goal? To get fat, dumb, and happy? My goal should be the glory of God. So this again would go against gluttony, go against all kinds of things, but, or whatsoever ye do, everything then, if God says eating and drinking should be done to the glory of God, that means everything I do throughout my day ought to be done for a purpose of the glory of God. If you cannot say, I'm doing this activity right now to God's glory, then why are you doing it? That's a pretty serious question, isn't it? Am I doing what I'm doing right now to the glory of God? So when I go to work, it should be for the glory of God. When I'm at home with my family, when I'm on vacation, when I am going to the grocery store, when I'm at the bank, when I'm on the internet, when I'm watching on TV, whatever I'm doing, it all ought to have one purpose, and that is the glory of God. You know how most people live? The glory of self. Most everything most people do, most decisions most people make is for glory of self, not the glory of God. But let's go back to verse 13. Who is before a blasphemer, persecutor, and injurious. These are great words right here in the middle of the verse. But I obtained mercy. But I obtained mercy. Obtained is the idea to bring help to the wretched. 
Paul, like you and I, deserved to die and be cast into hell, but God was merciful even to the one who persecuted the church. Isn't that amazing? Paul said, God was merciful to me. As Jesus gives the account of the Pharisee and the publican praying, remember Jesus tells us about the Pharisee standing there praying by himself and saying, oh God, you know, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I gain. God, you're so lucky to have me. I'm such a great guy. And yet it tells us the publican wouldn't even so much as lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat upon his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. How do you view yourself? Because Jesus said, that man went home justified. You know what the problem is? Oh, we came to Christ humbly at the cross. We realized, yes, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But somehow, sometimes in the Christian walk, all of a sudden we think, I've arrived. Despite what your GPS tells you, you've never arrived. We're never there yet, Christian. And any good that is seen in my life is not me anyhow. It's just the working of Jesus Christ in my life. So I don't deserve the glory for it anyhow. But beyond mercy, Paul then talks about the grace of God. He says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceeding abundant. Now, the Greek word there is quite interesting. It's a superlative, you know, we have good, better, best. Well, if we had good, better, bestest, best and bestest, this would be the bestest. This would be like that big superlative, the real big one, the one that's above, you know. Grace did exceeding abound, overflowing. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, Moreover, the law entered, the defense might be abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might Grace reigned through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace was bestowed on me was not in vain. But by the grace of God I am what I am. When's the last time that thought actually just really captured your mind? But by the grace of God. You understand, I would not be standing in this pulpit preaching the word of God today if it wasn't for the grace of God. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you would not have eternal life if it were not, but by the grace of God. Folks, no wonder Paul just takes a moment to focus on Jesus Christ and his mercy and his grace, because can we really fathom the grace of God in our lives? unmerited favor. You know what that means? I don't deserve it. I don't deserve the grace of God. But he loved me enough. You see, mercy, I've heard it explained, if God had said, okay, fine, then I'll show my mercy when somebody receives Christ, they don't go to hell, not getting what I deserve because I deserve hell, that would be mercy, right? Anything beyond that is God's grace eternal life, a home in heaven, victory over sin, release from the power of sin, the indwelling Holy Spirit, 
should I continue? You know, that's all grace. And that's just beginning of it. The comfort when I'm in a trial. The strength to continue to fight for Christ. The victory over sin. Boy, God's grace is just super abounds. And someday, if the Lord should tarry, and Jesus Christ doesn't come back first, we're all going to die. I don't think an experience that any one of us is really looking forward to. Now, the wonderful thing is, as a born-again believer, I don't have to fear death. And I've shared with you many times, I don't fear death. I fear the pain associated with death. Because I was a sailor, not a Marine, so pain is not weakness leaving the body. But may I say... When it's my time to die, the grace will be sufficient for the moment. I don't have dying grace yet. You know why? Well, by God's grace, I'm not dying yet. But when the time comes, I can stand here assuredly and say, I'll have the grace to go through the veil of death. I know it because his grace has always been sufficient. Every trial... Every mile, every experience in life, his grace has been sufficient. So why should it be any less at that moment? So in the last few minutes, I'd like us to focus on the grace of God. John 1:14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace abounds with faith. Go back to the verse 14. And grace of our, Lord Jesus, uh, of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, it is grace that provided a way of salvation. Ephesians 2.8, 2, 8, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace provided the way of salvation. It is grace that showed me the way of salvation. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But Titus 2.11 tells us, For the grace of God that bringeth us to salvation hath appeared to all men. God's grace sustains. Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Grace grounds us. Hebrews 13, 9, Be not carried, away, uh, carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. And then grace is endless. First Peter 4.10, Every man has received a gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The manifold, the many aspects, the many ways in which God manifests. Itself. It's just endless. Grace abounds with faith, but grace also abounds with love. Now the word love here in the Greek is the agape love, the highest form of love, the selfless sacrificial love. But when I understand the grace and love of Christ to me, I can do no less than show that grace and love. 
toward others. Because understand it was through God's grace and God's love that Jesus Christ came to this earth and died for me. God himself became a man, as we've said. What great love. And how can I look at the love and grace that God has given me and then turn around to a brother or sister and say, I can't forgive them. Now, this is not to be mistaken with the acceptance of sin, but rather loving the sinner and sharing the truth in love. You see, many times we have the right position, but our disposition stinks. I'm going to be honest with you. Am I extremely angry of politicians telling us for 50 years, well, as soon as we get rid of Roe versus Wade, we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll do away with abortion, and now all of a sudden they're all cowering in a corner? Yes. But going and screaming at them and yelling at them and calling them fools and everything else will accomplish nothing. There needs to be love and grace in the way we approach them. Now, I think we can ask very direct questions, but it can be done in a loving fashion. Do you understand? When I talk to some of the pro-life organizations who say we will not get behind that bill because they, they feel that it will do nothing, I'll be honest with you. Did I want to get out the lighter and burn the bridge? You bet you I did. But would it really show the love and grace of Christ? No, it wouldn't. So I told them, you know, very nicely that we disagree with them. And, and the conversations I had all were cordial and ended well that we can work together on the next day. Understand? Because some of these folks claim to be Christians. And I'm not going to sit there. I'm not their judge. Okay? But the point being this. Christian, I feel much of our society has lost its civility because too many Christians have lost their civility. We don't know what graciousness means anymore. It's one thing to be right. But when you cannot express the truth with passion but yet love, then maybe you need to let somebody else do the speaking. Okay, let's go back to the illustration of these two ladies who were with us. Because we had expressed the love of Christ, I want to read this verse, and I want this to sink in. Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one toward another. As I said earlier, I saw this week pastors arguing on Facebook over something ridiculously stupid. At least the argument was ridiculously stupid. If pastors are doing that, no wonder we have a problem in the church of we lack love toward the brethren. You go in some towns and you see a church on every corner, and the unfortunate truth is that sometimes if you search the history of those churches, you find out that one is a daughter church of the one next to it because they couldn't get along and they had fighting among themselves. And by the way, that church actually is the daughter of the church next to it because they were fighting and couldn't get along with themselves. And then that's actually started by the church four doors down because, and you think I'm kidding, I have seen it happen. I got news for you. Every born-again child of God, we're going to spend eternity together in heaven, so we better start getting used to learning how to get together down here. And when the church has division and fighting among themselves, Jesus said, and all men shall know that you are my disciples. 
By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one toward another. Are there brothers and sisters with whom I disagree? Yes. Now, you can call me judgmental, but there are some who are false teachers who I don't think really are brothers and sisters in Christ, and I will call them out for their false doctrines. And if, even if they are a brother with false doctrine, I'm going to call them out because of the false doctrine they're promoting, not because I don't love them, not because I don't want to see them following Christ, but I, am, I have a, uh, a responsibility of protecting this flock against false doctrine. So yes, I will call out false doctrines. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about the factions, the cliques, the ways in which we group ourselves with some and not with others. It happens in every church. I don't say this to reprimand. I say this because it's just a true fact. But several years ago, we changed the way we do attendance. Now, we do keep track of everybody by name who's in every service. You say, why do you do that? Well, a lot of reasons I really don't want to get into, okay? But some of it's legal reasons and 99% of it's legal reasons, okay? We changed it a few years ago where I asked the ushers to start doing the attendance for us because we had a new system to be able to do it. Again, not trying to pick because there was more than one. Usher came to me and pulled me aside and said, I don't know who anybody is in the church. I said, yeah, that's why we need to do this. Huh? I said, part of our problem as a church is we don't even associate with each other as a church, as a body of believers. In case you haven't noticed, look around. We're not that large a church. All right? So if you don't know who everybody is here, why not? These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're a member of this church and don't even know who the rest of this body are, why not? If you're not fellowshipping with these other believers, why not? If you can't say, I have a love for every person in this room, why not? Let me go back to John 13 and verse 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Do you want the world to know that you're a disciple of Christ? If you have love one to another, you want to show the world that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, but yet you complain about the other church members or you don't show love to the other church members. How is the world supposed to know that you're one of his disciples when Jesus himself said, they will know that you're my disciples by your love one to another? Well, they're different than I am. So, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you don't like different, you shouldn't be living in Havelock, North Carolina, because this is like the melting pot of the whole United States. We get them from all over the place. And yes, Northern culture is different than Southern culture. Western culture is different than Eastern culture. It is, yes, there are differences in the way people are. There's differences in personalities. There's difference in the way people's preferences. There's differences, all kinds of differences. But you know what? That is a beautiful thing, not a bad thing. Matter of fact, I've learned from every one of you in this room. Do we all have personalities that mesh with some better than others? Yes, including me. And I need to be careful that I don't allow myself to be drawn into certain clique of people that I like, or maybe our personalities mesh better, if I could say it that way, than others. I need to be fair and show love toward all. But so does every one of us.
But if you choose not to be involved in your local church, then how are you supposed to get to know the other members of your local church? If you choose not to be involved, if you choose not to be here for every service, folks, you might think, well, preacher, you got a long way off from the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. No, this is all because of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And if he has been so merciful and so gracious to us, and we are called Christians, which means we are to be a reflection of him, then that is what the world should see in us. Is that what the world sees? But don't answer for everybody else in the room. Don't be one of those sitting there, oh boy, I tell you what, so-and-so needed this message today. Because that already shows the wrong heart attitude. So as Paul continues to focus on Christ, he mentions the mercy and grace of Christ. In spite of what Paul once was and the reasons why he did it, God showed him mercy and grace. And if you are saved, God has shown the same to you. He's been merciful. He's been gracious to you. And so you and I need to rejoice in the abounding grace of God. And you and I need to be showing that love and grace and mercy to others. But if you're here this morning and have never been saved, then I got great news for you. God loves you. God has been merciful to you. God wants to extend his grace to you. God has already provided the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. And if you receive him today, you can know that you have eternal life. Let's bow for a word of prayer.